Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God, but through the lens of sacred tradition, that is, the tradition that goes back to Jesus and the apostles. Now, of course, we love to have you become part of this show. You can do so the way these nice folks have done by coming here to our studios and participating in the live show. Or during the live broadcast, you can call in a question. Of course, that's on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And the phone number you can call if you are in North America is 1-800-221-9460. That's 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside America, you can still call. And the number is country code 1, area code 205. 271-2980. You can also send us questions and comments via email by writing to scripture and tradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on YouTube. Now today we will try to focus on how our Lord centered his apostles' attention on the importance of believing that he is the Lord God. And we'll see how the 11 apostles were oblivious to the clues revealing the identity of the traitor who was still in their midst. Now we are going through the book I wrote called Wheat and Tares. Restoring the Moral Vision of a Scandalized Church. You can get this book at EWTN Religious Catalog. Just go to EWTNRC.com where it is item number 81098. 81098. And if you're following in the book, we are uh, beginning today's discussion on page 74, okay? So let's take a look at that. Now, again, remember, the context of this whole discussion is the foot washing in John chapter 13. This is after the Lord has already washed their feet, and now our Lord Jesus is with them and in this discussion. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, in the next verses, we see that he's trying to focus them on faith, that he is the Lord God. Let's take a look at John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Our Lord said, I tell you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone whom I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Well, let's take a look at that. Now, our Lord has already begun to demonstrate his divinity, 
showing his disciples the truth that we saw way earlier in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says that the Word became flesh, that Jesus Christ is that infinite Word of God, the second person of the Trinity who has become flesh. And he's demonstrating it in two ways in this whole discussion. We already saw last time how he points to the fact that the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, was fulfilling a prophecy that was made in Psalm 41, verse 9, about his friend raising his heel against him, turning into an enemy, in other words. And we, that fulfillment of that prophecy is uh, one of the ways to show he's divine. Also, he gives a prophecy. Our Lord has this knowledge of the suffering he is about to undergo. And that knowledge of the future and making a direct prophecy about it, that's also a way for our Lord to know uh, what's happening because He is God. So that's the other side of this. And we can then see that uh, this proof of his divinity is there, but also in the words that he uses, we see another indication that he is God. I read the scripture text as it is found in the Revised Standard English translation, but I'm going to be a little more precise right now because when it, it says here, uh, I tell you this before it takes place, when it does, you may believe that I am. That's what it says in Greek. The word he is not there. That they put that in for English grammar's sake. But I think that's a mistake. I don't agree with translating it that way. I would leave it as it is, that I, I'm giving you a prophecy and when it takes place, you may believe that I am. That is an extremely important phrase because it goes back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses, who's looking for a sheep, comes to a burning bush. He sees the bush on fire, yet is not consumed. So he goes to it to see why is it not burned up and why is the flame just stay there? And the Lord God tells him to take off his shoes. This is holy ground. And God said to Moses, who asked, who are, you know, who are you? I don't know who you are. God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So that I am is the name that the Lord God uses. And 
this is translated, uh, you know, by Saint John to be very literal. Ego me, I am. It's a very strongly emphatic. He could have just said, "Amy, I am." No, it's strong. It says, "Ego, I am." And in saying this, he is again in this gospel indicating that he is the Lord God. He had said this back in John chapter 6, verse 20, when he is walking on the water. Now, why is that important? Because only in the Old Testament, only the Lord God walks on water. And if you want to see references to that, take a look at my book on the Eucharist. You can see a whole presentation on that. But he, he said there, uh, in, to, in John 6, 20, I am, do not be afraid. A lot of the translations will say, it is I. They'll put it into that form. But in Greek, it is very clear again, ego eimi, I am. And that's the first time in the gospel that our Lord says this absolute form of that phrase. Later, he'll also say, I am the bread of life. He'll say, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He'll give, I am the life and the, the resurrection and the life. He'll give a number of qualifiers with it. But in John 6, 20, also in John chapter 8, here in John chapter 13, uh, verse 19, and again in chapter 18 in Gethsemane, we'll see, he uses this absolute form. I am, and it is his way of pointing to the fact that he is God. And should you, you know, I know that there's sometimes uh, brothers and sisters who show up from the kingdom hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll try to deny that this applies to Jesus as, as God. Um, and <laughs> one of the dumbest things I ever heard in my life, they made up a tense in order to, you know, explain this away. But they're, they're making that up. They ever try to argue the Greek with you on this? And they say, well, it's the special tense. No, it's not. It's not. It's the indicative. It's just, I am. And it is meant to be an indication that he is the Lord God of the Old Testament. They just cannot deal with that. And that's because of the weakness of their own founder. So this is his statement, and he calls them to believe. But it's not only calling the apostles to believe. This is something for all of us. We are also challenged to have faith. Now, we Catholics say the Nicene Creed every Sunday except Easter. And in Easter, we renew our baptismal vows. Otherwise, we say it every, every week. And this is a statement that I believe in God the Son. Well, we are being called not only just to repeat that formula, which we should, but also to 
express our faith. This is the faith I say to God. This is the faith I want to live by, and it's the faith I'm willing to die for. That's what is going on there. And that Jesus Christ is therefore the same Lord God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And if they believe, and if we believe, if we have faith, then we can receive Jesus. And in receiving him, we also receive the Heavenly Father. And of course, with them, the Holy Spirit. Something that will be a discussion in the next three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, of how receiving the Father and receiving the Holy Spirit and receiving Jesus all go together because it's one God, not three gods. So that's a very important point for them. And it's an important point for us that we express our faith in the creed uh, as a way to show our commitment to him and to receiving Jesus. That's why we say the creed before we go to the offertory. We prepare our hearts to receive Jesus and we make this act of faith in him in its fullness. Now, at this point, we see that Jesus, our Lord, in verse 21, um, you know, speaks to them again. Um, he said, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is how we know Judas is still there. Jesus washed his feet. So Judas is the one who's going to betray him. And this troubles him. It's not like, yeah, okay, it's another day in salvation. I just got to deal. No, he loves Judas. Just like he loves every sinner, including those who rebel against him and deny him and reject him. He, he loves the, 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 the sinners. Another part of being troubled in spirit is that the disciples don't understand. They don't comprehend. They, the disciples, uh, as it goes on, say, looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom he loved, was lying close to the breast of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned him and said, tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So this is uh, something that is very important. Um, and Jesus, you know, he, of course, the beloved disciple, St. John, uh, went to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answers him in this intimate conversation. It is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This also is part of that fulfillment of Psalm 41, because it says, the one who ate bread with me is the one who has raised his heel against me. And I've said this before. We talked about this uh, uh, earlier when we were looking at the Gospel of Luke. 
and I said that breaking off a piece of bread, dipping it into one of the sauces that, or, or salads that they would have at the table, uh, what they call soft salads, like we, we in the Middle East people eat baba ganoush and hummus and things like that. By dipping it in to that sauce and feeding it to them, this is a sign of friendship. This is an intimate sign of friendship. And that's what Christ is doing. This is one last reach out by Jesus to Judas. He doesn't say, oh boy, this, we're going to fulfill the prophecy and get it. No, he's reaching out to turn Judas away from the betrayal. And at the same time, using that act of friendship that act of love as a sign to indicate who the betrayer is. And what happens? What happens with that? In verse 27, Then after the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. No, and this is also a call to quickly make up his mind. He, Jesus would know. I mean, our Lord had done spiritual battle with Satan. He's well aware of his presence. And he would have a strong sense of it. And before the evil spirit can take that complete guidance of Judas, he our Lord is still giving him a choice. He doesn't say, go ahead and betray him. He says, no, what you're, whatever you, uh, what you're going to do, do quickly. Make up your mind now, because Satan was right there. And we see in verse 27 that at that point, Satan entered into him, and he went off to the betrayal. betrayal. This is... A, a, a key moment. And I've been saying throughout this whole section on the Last Supper that the Last Supper was a battleground between Satan and Jesus, between Satan's kingdom of darkness and Christ's kingdom of light. That's the Last Supper is a battleground. We saw at the beginning that Satan had come into him. We see that in Luke and in John. And now we see it again at this moment, this crucial moment when Christ is identifying his betrayer, but also making one last invitation to turn around. And you notice our Lord doesn't say, this is the guy, grab him, don't let him escape. No, he doesn't do that. This, by the way, I think is very important because it would be, it's very tempting for us when the people we love sin against us. I've, I've dealt with this many times when there's divorce, abandonment, and other things that people pray for them and say, well, why doesn't Jesus stop them? He didn't stop Judas. He could have said, all you loving, stand up, tie him up. That's what I would have done. 
One more reason to be glad I have no charge of anything. But our Lord let him exercise his freedom. And he abused his freedom, but our Lord let him exercise it. Now, the other 11, you know, Mother Angelica very frequently would say that, can you believe these apostles? They're a bunch of dodos. She frequently called them dodos until the late 90s. In the late 90s, she, she didn't seem to call them dodos anymore. I pointed that out to her. And I suggested, are you getting a little nervous that you're going to meet them soon? <laughs> Make me nervous. So at any rate, uh, this would be an example, though, of them being dodos, because it says in verses 28 and 29, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. They're coming up with these plausible excuses for Judas leaving the supper early. And yet, here's where they're kind of dopey. Because Peter had given, their the leader, clearly, had given instructions to John, find out who it is. And when John gets the signal that it's the one to whom Jesus gives the bread and it's Judas, they come up with excuses for him. And they attributed good motives to Judas. They said he's going to go get something for the feast or he's going to go give something to the poor. They came up with good motives instead of saying, wait a minute, if the traitor is here, again, my reaction would be nobody leaves this room. That would have been my approach. And Jesus recognizes Judas's free will and the apostles don't recognize much of anything. They don't get it. And John says, as one of the 11, St. John says they didn't get it. Um, this is something that perhaps they realize. If they had accused Judas of being the traitor, they'd have to act on that accusation, they'd have to do something. And this may be a way for them to avoid taking the action they knew they had to take. Let's take a break here, and we'll come back and continue this passage in a couple minutes, so please stay with us. Thank you and welcome back. As you know, I've mentioned this a number of times. I wrote this book 
as a way to help us pray through the sex abuse scandal that took place in the church, uh, a scandal that began to reach its high point. You know, the, it's a bell curve. Uh, it went up, started going up in the late 60s, where this, this kind of uh, abuse began. It comes to a, a, a high point in the 70s and into the late 80s. And then as it started to be come known, it started declining in the uh, 90s, and after 2002 has really, really diminished. There are old cases that still come up, but very few new ones. That's it's been, you know, uh, a good thing. And I want us to use the gospel as a way to help understand this issue and to end enter into understanding it in our prayer. There's a role for the lawyers and the police to take, uh, that's very, and judges, that's very important. And there's also a role for psychologists. Um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about some of the difficulties that some of them presented. But we also need to approach this spiritually, because it's ultimately Christ who's going to be the one that stirs within us. And I want to apply this scene in a particular way, because one of the most difficult parts of the whole scandal was not only that there were clergy who did terrible things, uh, that was bad enough, but one of the other problems is that many of the bishops, the seminary rectors, and the superiors of the religious orders failed to apprehend a lot of the guys when they had evidence. I think it's sometimes like this. They would have sometimes direct, but usually indirect knowledge of some form of abuse, sexual abuse going on, and sometimes financial abuse. They would have some knowledge of it, there may be a rumor, and yet in some cases, it seemed they did little, some, some of them did very little to confront the, the problems. And when direct evidence was given to some of the bishops, and superiors and seminary rectors, they didn't take it to the proper authorities because in addition to being a grievous sin, it's also a very serious crime to, you know, to uh, be abusive to minors. Another kind of failure along this line occurred among parents. I've seen the the parents themselves talk about this in various documentaries. Their children would say something to them, and they didn't act on it. They said, no, 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 that priest would never do such a thing, instead of listening to their children. That's part of the pain of the victims, 
that they weren't believed and the action wasn't taken. And this is something that is very, very tragic, you know, in the whole circumstance because, uh, of course, had it been stopped, you know, at an earlier stage, it may not have become so widespread. Uh, our society still has a very widespread problem about this. And in some sectors of society, the perpetrators are not allowed to be apprehended. They're not allowed to be taken to court. They're protected. This, this is especially true in the school systems, the public school systems, that the teachers' unions are protecting some of the perpetrators. If you want evidence of this, look up the, the just do a search. Look up Rubber Room, New York City. Rubber Room, New York City. That's the building to which they send teachers that were abusive. And find out how much that cost them because they don't get fired. They get, keep their wages, their insurance, their benefits. They just can't be in classrooms, so they're kept out of the classroom. And this is something that uh, it was, you know, not unlike what the bishops and superiors too often did, failing to address the sometimes moving priests from one place to another. And this is something that we can realize happened when Judas was about to betray Jesus and the apostles didn't act. And it is as serious a situation as that because it, you know, remember the principle that we looked at, Jesus gave this principle, whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. And whether it's for good or for bad. And there are a lot of very bad things done. And this is something that had to be addressed and there was failure. And that's what still tears a lot of people up and disappoints people. And this will be something we'll have to pursue more because this had a big effect. But one of the things that I think we should take a look at to conclude this whole chapter 13 of John, it says in chapter 13, verse 30, so after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out and it was night. That when Christ gave him that last chance at friendship, he still went out to complete the betrayal. And the notification that it was night, right after it had said that Satan had entered him, this shows that he belongs to the kingdom of darkness, that he is going where he belongs. And this is when he, uh, you know, leaves the upper room. Finally, he's already ordained a bishop. He had already received his first Holy Communion. Christ had washed his feet. 
and now he goes off, despite all those graces, he goes off to betray Jesus. Now, our Lord responds. He stays inside the light in the upper room, this battleground. And at this point, he doesn't say, oh, no, all is lost. Everything is a catastrophe. Mm -mm. What he says in verse 31 to 32 is, now is the Son of Man glorified, and in Him God is glorified. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Judas's departure is perceived by Christ as the moment of His glorification. And Jesus proclaims this glorification of God in the battle against evil. He knows that the evil is real. He's going to suffer it a lot. But it is something that, you know, will also be for the glorification of God, the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And glory in the Bible always refers to manifestations of God's power. Even in the midst of this catastrophe, of the betrayal of God the Son, God's power is going to be made manifest. And somehow His suffering will lead to the glory of the resurrection. And this is one of the reasons why all of this material, because of this passage and all the ones coming with it, uh, chapter 17 especially, uh, all the way from chapter 13 to 21 is called the Book of Glory in John. The first 12 chapters are the Book of Signs, but this is the Book of Glory. And it's because even through the suffering, God will bring glory. And this is something that's very important for us, that we need to see that even in the midst of so many people staying away from church, so many people being upset and even disgusted with the priests and bishops and sometimes with God and with the church, that we are not going to cave. Instead, we're going to have faith that Jesus is I am, that the Father is going to bring glory in the midst of this bad situation. Doesn't mean that the bad is good, but it means that God can bring good out of the bad. And our task in meditating on these passages is to say, Lord, how do you want to glorify yourself through the things I do? How do you want to use me to bring glory into our world and make me your servant to obey you and be your instrument in this difficult time of the church so that many more souls would come to you in forgiveness, reconciliation, and find the joy of life and the meaning of life when what they see in the world is meaninglessness and despair and folly. So this is a very important time for us, okay? 
And we'll stop there and we'll begin the next section in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, next week. But now we'll take some of your questions. And I'm going to start with Luis, who is in New Jersey. Luis, what can we do for you? Hello, hello Mitch. Hi, uh, what can question. we do for you today? Thank you. Um, my question is about um, civil marriage. Yes. Are people in a civil marriage in mortal sin? If so, how should we point out their, uh, their, their state of sin? And lastly, mm -hmm. can a Catholic attend a relative civil union services? Couple, Luis, great, great questions, important questions today. First, the uh, uh, yes, it is. A, a, you can have a civil marriage, and in some governments, that's necessary. For instance, in Europe, you do the civil marriage, and then you have the church marriage, and the civil marriage is not the sacrament. You need to come to church and celebrate the sacrament of holy matrimony so that it is not just getting a license from the state to satisfy state requirements and insurance and all the other property issues that go on. It is about bringing each other to Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ is the center of the marriage. He needs to be the center of the family and not the state or each other even. Jesus has to be ahead of each of the husband and the wife. He has to be key. And they're secondary to him. And so it, it's something that is uh, sinful if they live together. If they just have that and then wait until the church ceremony, then there's no problem. But uh, if they, you know, start living together without the, the sacrament, it, it's, you know, that would be a serious sin. So they need to, now, and you can have that done with the convalidation easily enough. Uh, and it's a, it's a fairly easy, I've done it many times. So it's rectifiable, but I would get that rectified. And here's, again, you want to emphasize Christ needs to be the center of the marriage. And that's what you call them to do. Does that help, Luis? How do we uh, lovingly point out their sin? Pardon? How do we lovingly point out? Oh, their oh, yeah. Again, what you do here's one way to think of it. Um, if uh, think of marriage and human sexuality as something very sac sacred and very holy, and I oftentimes compare that to the sacred vessels at Mass. Now, I could take a chalice and a paten and go down to McDonald's and have a milkshake and a burger on the paten and the chalice, right? It would work, but it would be a sin of sacrilege. That's not my chalice and my patent, that's there to give glory to God. That's why it's gold, not because of me, but to honor Jesus Christ. And to use it outside the context of Holy Mass is to use something sacred in a secular way. 
That's the way I would explain to them. You're using your sexuality outside the context of the holiness God wants you to have in your whole relationship, including in your intimacy. And so don't use a sacred vessel as if it were, you know, something for a secular reason. The state doesn't define you before God. God defines you. Receive that grace. And that's what I would recommend. All right. Take a little break. We'll be back with more questions from our studio audience and from you as well. So please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, please be sure to join me tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for EWTN Live. I will be speaking with the Bishop of the Diocese of Trondheim in Norway, Most Reverend Eric Varden. And we'll discuss some of the ways that he tries to shepherd his flock, also talk about his own conversion to Catholicism and his development uh, as a Catholic, and then his uh, work on his website, coramfratribus.com, where he evangelizes people who don't know much about the faith. So that's what we'll be doing, okay? All right, so let us now go to more of your questions. We'll start off here in the studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from El Paso, Texas, Father. That's a great town. Good to have you here with us. Thank you, Father. And your question? My question is, is there a correlation between where God in the modern asks Moses to take off his sandal because he's in holy ground, mm -hmm. and Christ removes the sandals of his disciples to wash mm -hmm. their feet? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Um, in the case of Moses, it's not about a cleansing process, but remember he's been you know, following after sheep and leading sheep, and a lot of things they might be stepping in. So this is something that the, the shoes bring dirt to the presence of God that doesn't belong there, so he removes them, whereas in the case of the apostles having their feet washed, it is more about a purification of the apostles. Um, and it also indicates, as Jesus says to Peter, you've already been cleansed, but just your feet. It is part of that purification of the last aspect of the person that still needs some cleansing. And it's less about the ground being holy ground specifically than it is about 
the, the cleansing process. And the second aspect of it is also is to show that Jesus Christ, God made man, is there to serve them. Uh, that's not at stake in uh, the, the passage at the bush, bush. God is promising to liberate them, but the removal of the sandals doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just that the ground is sacred. And later on, when Moses returns to Mount Sinai in chapter uh, 19, uh, he, it will also be such a holy place that no one except Moses is allowed to even touch the mountain, not even an animal, uh, under pain of death. So it's, it's a two different perspectives on it, okay? And we have another studio question. Ma'am, where are you from? Yes, hi, I'm here from Mountain City, Tennessee. Good to have you here, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. Uh, my question is about um, Judas Iscariot. Um, in some of the movies I've seen, he's portrayed as not really wanting to betray Jesus, mm -hmm. but he's trying to force his hand, get him to act like a Messiah should be acting mm -hmm. and lead a revolt. Mm -hmm. Is that just another way that people are trying to excuse his behavior? And I wondered if your studies have I, sort of I, put yeah. light on that. I, I think your uh, second part of your question indicates that you kind of recognize this is other folks in the media giving their own perspective on Judas. And, you know, sometimes they give this kind of an excuse as a way to, you know, justify that, well, I have good intentions too when I sin, and I don't mean to be bad. And, and I believe them, by the way. You know, people do have good intentions when they sin, but where they make a mistake is that having good intentions doesn't justify bad means. Remember our basic principle, the end does not justify the means. You, you, know, you can have all sorts of good goals, and good ideas and purposes, but that does not make a bad method good. That doesn't happen. The method, if the method is bad, it ruins the good goal. So for instance, uh, you know, we see a lot of times today that people don't want uh, some poor woman or girl who's been raped to have a baby that they're not ready to take care of, didn't plan on, and they're a victim of somebody else, right? And, that, and they shouldn't, I, you know, I would agree. I don't want somebody to have to take care of a baby they can't handle. But you cannot kill the baby because you don't want them to go through something else bad. I can't, I, I can help that child or that woman in another way, caring for her through her pregnancy and finding someone to adopt her baby. But I don't, you know, do something bad for a good purpose. 
That's the kind of thinking that I think some folks are trying to justify. Our Lord did not. Remember what he said to Judas, that woe to that man. It would be better for him if he were not born. The seriousness of his sin is serious. And the same would be true of um, you know, people who might have a good motive for something else. Many of our politicians think this way, including Catholic ones, but they're wrong. You cannot do an evil act for a good motive, and that's very important. All right, let's take a look at one of your emails. This is from Eileen. She says, Father Mitch, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, why is verse 21 left out? I'm an Ignatian-trained spiritual director, and one of my directees is asking, I was in your class in Bay St. Louis with the University of Dallas many, many years ago. Maybe saying that the Ignatius Bible is a good translation. Yes, I would still say that. I checked it and other Bibles and only find it in the footnotes. Please help us understand the reason for removing verse 21. The reason, verse 21 says that these spirits can be cast out only by uh, prayer and fasting, okay? That's what it says. Now, here's the problem, that that is found only in later manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts do not contain it. And what they suspect, and I would, you know, concur on this, is that it was probably uh, a monk that added it. You know, it says prayer. This one can only be cast out with prayer, but adding and fasting was probably added in by one of the monk uh, copyists. You know, they did a lot of prayer and lots of fasting. So they were reflecting their own practice, which is a good practice, but that doesn't seem to be what our Lord said. And so the uh, folks who do biblical criticism don't include it. And that's, that's probably right. Though, still not against doing prayer and fasting and being with bad spirits. And then we also have another email from Denise in the great state of Maryland. Father Mitch, if my grandchildren don't get baptized, does that condemn them to hell? Not necessarily. A couple things I would say is this. Don't you baptize them, you know, without their parents' permission, because part of the baptism of children includes a promise by the parents to raise their children in the faith. If you can't guarantee that, don't baptize them, except in an emergency. If the child is in danger of death, baptize them, okay? Um, but if not, don't. And instead, here's what you can do. Your grandma, grandmas give as I recall from many years ago, grandmas give toys, candy, sometimes clothes, and that's boring for boys anyway, but uh, candy, cake, and toys, 
And when the grandkids come to visit, you can have videos to watch, you know, on TV, such as Veggie Tales and some of the others that are uh, some Catholic lives of saints, lives of Jesus for children. You can have that around the house. And especially uh, Veggie Tales have good songs and things. You can let the grandkids watch that. And as my grandmother did, she had a whole collection of holy cards, and she would tell me who the different saints are. And I, and I, I still have some of the holy cards that she gave me. Dare I say it, over 60 years ago, 60 plus years ago. Uh, and that is something that is a great task. And talk to them about Jesus. That'll be part of what you can do. And then see about getting them baptized later, okay? But we have to bring this to a close, I'm afraid. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this program and all of our other programs only because this network is brought to you by you. That's how Mother Angelica had been inspired to establish us. So, for that to work, we ask that you please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do that, we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you all, and thank you. Thank you.